So let's hear God's word. Judges 13, verses 1 through 5. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And then the next portion is beginning at 1628. So 1628 through the end of the chapter. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might. And the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the life of Samson that is an example to us today. And we pray, Father, please have your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. What is it that you would have us to learn from this, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Today we will cover a lot of turf and Instead of reading to you all four chapters concerning the life and death of Samson, I will instead, hopefully, give you a summary of his life that will perhaps be a little easier to listen to anyway. Uh, sometimes it's tough for people to listen to just four chapters being read. I know some members of my family fall asleep when I do that at home, so I wouldn't want that happening here. So now, first, before we... Uh, go into the summary of his life, I want to talk a little bit about Samson. He is the last of the judges mentioned in the book of Judges. And so sometimes when you look at a list, they'll show him as the last of the judges, but that's not the case. Because when you go to 1 Samuel, which kind of picks up where Judges leaves off, you see that both Eli and Samuel were also judges. But he is the last recorded in this book. Now, the story of Samson is odd. Uh, if you are very familiar with the book of Judges, I think you could agree with me that the book of Judges is odd. It is filled with oddities that uh, really puzzle people. And I think if you ever get into a debate with unbelievers who have read the Bible, this might be where they take you in order to ask your opinion on various things that they read there. So now this story of Samson is paradoxical in many ways because he certainly was a man of questionable character. 
He had this superhuman strength, and yet he appeared at times to lack even basic common sense. He was singled out from the womb for service to God, and yet he lacked self-control at critical points. He was a judge of Israel, yet he repeatedly lusted after Philistine women. And he was a man of faith, but emotionally volatile and self-centered. So, what do we uh, know of Samson? And I hope many of you have read through this because it will make this a little more understandable for you. But let me give you this summary sketch of these four chapters of Judges. Uh, first, we begin with this period of time. And the first verse says that the uh, Israelites were under the thumb of the Philistines and had been for 40 years. So he was born into a time where Israelites were being oppressed by the Philistines. And the Danites, of whom he was a member, lived right on the border with the Philistines. As a matter of fact, the Philistines lived in the territory that God had promised to the Danites. And you'll see later, after our section actually in Judges 18, it starts out with the Danites not having yet moved into their inheritance. So they were kind of a people that were squished into a smaller territory than God had planned for them. But it was their own fault, as it was for other tribes that also had refused to obey God fully in eradicating the unbelieving nations that had lived there before they came in. So this uh, boy, Samson, was born to a man and his wife. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife. She was barren and yet he promised a child. And Manoah was not there. He prayed that he would return and give them instructions as to how to raise this child. And he believed his wife. Uh, God honored that prayer, and the angel came back. And then the angel suggested that he offer a burnt offering because Manoah had invited him to a meal. And the angel of the Lord instead said, offer a burnt offering. And then, in the midst of the burnt offering, in the midst of the flame, the angel of the Lord rose up, ascended on the flame into heaven. And Manoah was frightened, but he thought he was going to die. But his wife comforted him, saying, God would have had ample authority to kill us. He is doing this for our benefit. He's, he's having us uh, uh, alive so, so that we can serve him in this way. And so then that kind of ends chapter 1, except for the last verse, or chapter 13. Or 14, but in the last verse it says, oh, I'm sorry, 13, 25, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. So we end this chapter of this promise of Samson with him having the Spirit of the Lord moving upon him. Now, before we go on to chapter 2 and begin with his downfall, I want to emphasize something about his heritage. He was uh, from birth, from the womb, a Nazarite. And in Numbers 6, we read about the Nazarite vow. This was uh, typically taken as a temporary vow, maybe 30 days, where someone sets themselves apart to the Lord, refuses to partake of wine, refuses to come near a dead body, and also does not cut their hair. And yet at the end of the time, the period where they're set apart to God, then they uh, shave their head, they cleanse themselves before the Lord, and they return to normal life. But this is unusual because he has been set apart from birth as a Nazarite forever. He is a lifelong Nazarite. So now we go on to chapter 14. And it starts out, 
Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Timnah was only about five miles away, and it wasn't really a Philistine city, but it wasn't really entirely a Danite city either. It was mixed up. There were a lot of uh, people that were living there that were of no specific ethnicity. And in order to go from Timnah to where he is in Zohar, or Zohar to Timnah, he has to pass through vineyards, the vineyards of the Philistines that surround Timnah. So this he had been doing. I think it was his custom. And yet he's down there. He sees this woman. He wants her. He comes back to his parents. They say, why would you want this? Why don't you seek a wife from our kin? And yet he insists, and they appear to give in to him. Whether they were wise in doing so, whether they were unwise in doing so, they did. And so you could see from the first chapter that they appeared to be a godly couple. I don't think they were uh, prone to disobeying God. Yet, here they were, and they gave in to his wishes. And it says clearly here that they did not know that this was of the Lord. In verse 4, his mother and father did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson was promised to begin this rebellion of the Israelites against the Philistines, and now it's about to begin. So he and his parents go down to uh, Timnah to seek the hand of this girl in marriage. Now on this trip, this is not a very uh, distant place. It's only five miles away, but Samson is separated from his parents. And that's when he kills this lion. This lion springs upon him and he rips it in half like a little goat. That's how it's described. He rips a lion apart like it's just a tiny animal. And so then he goes on and greets his parents, doesn't say anything about the fact that he's just killed this lion. So he goes down to Timnah, they make a deal, and then they go back home. Now several weeks have passed, maybe even a couple months, and they return. In the meantime, all this wedding feast has been set up. Now normally, the uh, parents of the, of the groom set up the wedding feast. They fund it, all of the uh, groom's friends come, and there are these 30 people that are supporting him. They're the, these groomsmen. But here, the Philistines provided these 30 people. Why would that be? Because the Israelites know that Samson is going way beyond what's normal here. He's not doing what's right. And so his friends and family, his uh, greater neighborhood, they won't go. They're not going down here to support him in this. And so he and his parents go, and yet they're in the midst of this kind of Philistine area. So now they're at the uh, wedding. Now, what you uh, know, what you, we know, and only Samson knows, is that on the way back down, again, he had gone off the route in order to find that lion. And he'd found that there was honey in the lion. There was a beehive. So he took some of that honey, he ate it, and he came out to the, I guess, the main trail, and he shared it with his parents, and they ate it. So no one else knows this except Samson, where this honey uh, was sourced from. So at the wedding feast, these 30 young men are there, and perhaps in an effort to impress him, who knows, but he tells them a riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet, and he had made a bet with them. If they were to answer his riddle, 
he would give them each a set of fine clothes. But if they cannot answer it, they're to give him 30 sets of clothes. So in other words, each person there would, would either receive or get a set of clothes, except for Samson. He would either have to give 30 or get 30. So he was exposed to quite a large potential loss here. And it says now, actually, I'll just kind of uh, cover this in brief, because when you read it and study it as I did, you see this. It says that the wedding feast was seven days long, and it gives the impression that these 30 men go to his wife-to-be, his betrothed at that point, and start putting increasing pressure on her to give, her the, give them the answer to the riddle. But I believe it started from the very first day because it says that she wept and pleaded with Samson to tell her the answer to the riddle for seven days. So they began right away trying to cheat, trying to get the answer out of his wife-to-be. And yet, as the week wore on, and they're coming closer to losing this bet, they get very cruel about it. And they threaten to burn her and her family if she does not find out what the answer is. And so they find out the answer. She finds it out from Samson. She pesters him to death. He tells her, and then they share it with him on the last day of the feast, they say. And he says this. It's very interesting. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. So he knows that she gave up this answer, and he's angry. Now, he's in the midst of this wedding feast. He's ending the wedding feast. Normally at this time, he would take her to be his bride, consummate the marriage, take her to her home, his home. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to Ashkelon, a Philistine city about 15, 20 miles away. And what does he do there? He murders 30 men, steals their clothes, brings them back, gives them to these 30 men, and then goes home. He's done with these people. He doesn't like how they've treated him. And so he's back up home now. And then we start chapter 15. And this is a man for you. This is a young, foolish man for you. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I thought you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. So then he tries to give Samson the younger sister. At the tail end, after Samson had left, you see that in the previous chapter that the father had given uh, this bride, this uh, Timna woman, to his best man. The man that he hadn't known until he met him probably at the wedding feast, but one of the 30 got this girl, probably along with the dowry that Samson had provided. It, it would appear that Samson's parents were well off. So they'd set up this big feast. They'd probably had to pay the father a dowry, and yet now it's been taken. That's, I believe, why he offers Samson his younger daughter in her place. So he's angry again. So now he said that he is not to blame for this. And this is how he said it. He said in verse 15, uh, 15 verse 3, And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless, regarding the Philistines if I harm them. So I believe he did harbor some guilt from what he'd done the first time. It was his own fault. And yet now he feels blameless in doing what he's about to do. And so now this is probably what you may have remembered from Samson. It's very uh, graphical. But he takes 300 foxes, ties their tails together in twos, sets them on fire, and sends them into the standing wheat fields 
of those uh, families around Timnah that have, that have done this. And so they are outraged by what has happened. And so then he is not in the picture now. These people come to investigate why, what has happened and why this has happened. And they say, well, this is Samson. He has done this because the Timnah uh, woman that he married, her father gave, him, gave her to another man. So then they went up and burned her and her father in their home. And so now they've done what they'd threatened to do at the wedding, but hadn't done because they'd learned the answer to the riddle. Then he is even angrier. And now I would say that he went Rambo on them. And if you look in verses 7 and 8, Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. Now he thinks he can control the extent to which this escalates, and then I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Now he's massacred these people. Just as he'd done with lion, he did with these men. He ripped them limb from limb. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is, this is pretty gory, but he's done this. Now, he knows they're going to be angry now, so he flees to Edom. It's like 15 miles away in the heart of Judah. It's in the mountains. He's hiding out in the, in the mountains of, of Judah. Well, the Philistines are not one to take this lying down. He had destroyed all of their crops. It said that he destroyed their wheat, their grapes, and their olives. He destroyed a lot of their livelihood from that whole area. And so then he slaughters these men. How many men? I don't know, but probably a lot, dozens, I would guess. So the Philistines come up and they march. I mean, this is an army that comes up against Judah. So they are before the gates of the Judites, and they say, what are you here for? We have come to arrest or bind Samson. So they said, well, let us get Samson for you. So 3,000 men of Judah go to Edom. Apparently, they know where he is. And then he says, will you kill me? And they assure him that they will not kill him. So he agrees to go with them. They bind him in ropes. He goes with them. But as he is approaching Lehi, and as the Philistines start cheering for the fact that this Samson is going to be delivered over to them, the Spirit of God comes upon him. He breaks those bonds as if they're nothing. He picks up a jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand men, a thousand Philistines. The Judah, uh, the people from Judah, the 3,000 men from Judah, don't appear to stick around for this. They're not helping, but they're not interfering. They don't want anything to do with Samson. They leave. And so that brings us to verse uh, 18, 15, 18. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name En-Hakur, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. And so we come to the end of chapter 15. We come to the end of this escalation of violence that really began with him making a foolish bet at a wedding feast, if not earlier, setting his eyes upon a Philistine woman that he ought not have set his eyes upon. Then we go to chapter 16. And 16, it kind of starts all over again. 
he visits a harlot in Gaza. Now, there are five Philistine strongholds in this area, and the Mediterranean is out here, and you've got Gaza along the Mediterranean. Gaza, the Gaza Strip, Gaza the city, is the furthest one to the south. And then you have Ashkelon and Ashdod, and then you have Ekron and Gath. Well, the city he was closest to would have been the two inland ones. But yet he went all the way down to Gaza, the furthest city, Philistine stronghold, from him, from where he was. I think that's very telling. So at this time, 20 years have passed, and it would appear that the Israelites have somewhat gained a parity, if not the upper hand, over the Philistines during this period. During the period that Samson is in power, during this period that the Philistines fear him, rightfully. So, but he goes down there, and what does he do? Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And then the Gazites are told about this. They wait, lay in wait for him. He learns of it, and about midnight, he comes out when they expect him to stay the night, so they're unprepared for this. He rips the gates out of the ground and carries them 35 miles to Hebron. These gates probably weighed about 1,000 pounds. He ripped them out of the ground and walked for a day and deposited them in a Hebrew city of Hebron. I mean, this is just phenomenal. Samson was an amazing guy. But look at what he'd been doing in Gaza. He had spent the night with a harlot. It is just such an odd mix of uh, sinful behavior mixed with incredible power that God had given him with. And so we have to admire his strength, but yet we just really puzzle over why God would grant such strength, such power to this man who appears to wield it willy-nilly. So now, then there is no pause here. And what happens then is it's learned that he has developed an infatuation or love. The text says love. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. Now, Sorek is very close to Timnah. I mean, it's just within walking distance, easily, within an hour. But now he's fallen in love with a woman named Delilah. This woman is Philistine, but she's most likely mixed. She's not uh, all Philistine. She's part Semitic, so she's part Jewish or at least part of the, you know, the tribes that had come in with Abram and Lot. So he loves her, and he begins spending time with her. Now, this is probably where most of us are very familiar with the story of Delilah, because this is where all of Samson's basic common sense goes out the window. The lords of the Philistines learn of his love for Delilah, and they go to her and say, we will each, and there are probably five of them for the five cities, we will each give you 1,100 checkers of silver if you determine from Samson what gives him his great strength. And so what's funny here is this is what Delilah says to him. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where, you get your, where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. This is not a woman who's trying to trick him, right? It's like, it's like Eve taking the apple, gave it to Adam, and he ate. She's not tricking him. She's just saying, hey, participate in this with me. And so you then have this happen. She gets an answer out of him. He says, if you tie me with seven new bowstrings, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So 
she woos him to sleep. They come in, they tie him up with seven bowstrings, and then she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he breaks up, he busts the bowstrings. And so then she says, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. And so then he says, ropes. Same thing happens. And so then she says, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you were to weave the seven locks of my hair together into the web of the loom. So she did. He awakens. He picks up the loom, chases off the Philistines. Then she told him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. She gets the Philistines to come back this fourth time, even though they probably doubt this is going to result in their succeeding, but she assures them, no, 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 he's told me the truth this time, and he had. But when they come in, and she said, the Samsons are upon you, he jumps up, thinking he's going to chase them off, but it's a sad verse here, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And so now he is as weak as any man. And so they take him, and they put out his eyes, and bring him down to Gaza, and set him to grinding in the grinding house. And so this is, if anybody of you has seen the Cecil B. DeMille movie, I saw that when I was young, when I was just a child. And when I saw the eye sockets, and they were going to blind him, and then in the next scene you see he has no eyes, and he's just pushing that wheel around, it's very, it lasts with you. That, that stuck with me for a long time. That just seems so horrific that anybody would have that done to them. But that's what they did to him. Yet, verse 22 reads, However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And so that's just thrown out there as this little warning of what is to come. So now the Philistines have this big annual festival, and they are going to worship Dagon, their god, down in Gaza, and they bring Samson out for entertainment. He's there to entertain them, entertain them and so they surely must ridicule him, heap insults upon him. But he gets the little boy that brings him out there to give him the feel of the pillars. And so then he prays to God. He pushes those pillars down, and it said that 3,000 people died. All these men and women, all the nobility probably of the Philistine land that probably were the ones that had access to that space, they all died. And then his family comes down, gets him from the rubble, takes him up and buries him in his father's tomb. So that is a summary of the life of Samson. And I think it took, what, about, uh, I don't know, about 15, 20 minutes. So now we have to unpack that. We have to say, okay, what's going on with Samson? Uh, how shall we focus on his life? I was telling uh, uh, Pastor Kaiser this morning that I read about, I don't know, probably 15 sermons, and yet uh, one had like four messages from this portion of Judges, and another had like eight or nine and so here I am trying to cover it in one, so I'm perhaps foolish. But uh, I will point out four negative lessons that we learn from the life of Samson and one positive lesson that we learn. And I think it's important to focus on his faults. 
I was trying to get through Matthew Henry's commentary on Samson's life, and I just couldn't stomach it. He, 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 uh, it's hard for Matthew Henry to say anything negative about people, I think, even, even when they're so clearly in the wrong. So he's sugarcoating all this, and I just finally thought, well, I don't know if I'm going to find anything of value here. I don't agree with his premises here. And so you have to admit that Samson was a very sinful man, ruled by his lusts at times. So the first of the negatives that I want to share is that he deviated from his purpose in life. He had a faithful mother and father. He was set apart by God from even before conception to be a Nazarite to God, dedicated to God. And that doesn't mean just these outward things. It doesn't mean just you don't cut your hair, you don't go near a dead body, and you don't drink anything fermented. It means so much more. That's just the negative aspects. That's the things that isolate you as a person and keep you focused on God. But yet he lacked that focus on God, at least early in his life. And yet Manoah is illustrated as being faithful. He prayed to God for guidance. He believed his wife. Uh, they appear to be a very godly couple. So Samson's purpose was that he was to lead the people of Israel against the Philistines. And yet, how do we see him doing that? Do we see him doing that uh, willingly? Do we see him doing that wisely with a plan? No, we just see him doing it rather haphazardly. But verse 5 of chapter 13 says, he shall begin to deliver Israel. So it doesn't seem that Israel is to be entirely freed from the Philistines uh, because of Samson's reign or his rule. So that was the first thing. He deviated from his purpose in life. And I believe when you uh, look at, well, I'll go ahead and turn in the next section. The second section is that he indulged in unlawful desires. So not only did he deviate from his purpose, in deviating from his purpose, he abandoned really what set him apart. He abandoned his identity. In going to Timnah, in setting his eyes upon that woman of Timnah, that young Philistine woman, he is moving far away from what God would have him to do. So he went to the wrong place. He looked at the wrong thing. He rejected the godly counsel of his parents when he came back to them and said what he wanted. And they said, isn't there a woman of our people that would please you? But he said, no, 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 I've set my eyes on her. So then he chose a wife against God's law. God's law was very explicit. You shall not intermarry with the pagan tribes that you are dispossessing of the land because they will turn your hearts to worship their pagan idols. He violated his Nazarene vow, I believe. And let me share with you, when I'd read Judges, when I'd read about Samson, it always puzzled me that he is with his parents on this brief trip of like four or five miles to Timnah and yet he can be separated from them enough to where he destroys a lion with his bare hands and they have no knowledge of it. I believe he'd traveled between Zora and Timnah often. And he'd gone off into the vineyards and probably eaten grapes. He knew he ought not to be, but yet here he is off by himself on a very brief trip that he is, and his parents are taking down there. I don't think it's without reason that he did not share with them what he had done because he knows he ought not have been over there. Then when he goes back down and goes back to find the lion, he's explicitly violating a Nazarite vow. He's going right to a dead body of an unclean animal. Any Nazarite would have to shave their head after seven days of cleansing were they to do that. And he does it repeatedly. 
yet he never shaves his head. He never honors God by being obedient to his word and fulfilling what is the consequence of a Nazarite breaking that vow. He had really disqualified himself as a Nazarite at this young age, yet he persists in it because it's like the life that he's known. It's the life that he uh, wants to lead, perhaps, at least with the uh, the adulation that may come from it from others that don't yet know that he's living like this. So I believe he's violated two of the three precepts of the Nazarites. I believe he's probably eaten the grapes and drank the wine because the feast that he put on at his wedding with the Timnite woman, that is spoken of as a feast of drinking. These 30 men, all this wedding feast, it's a drinking feast. So maybe he didn't partake. Maybe he didn't eat the grapes. But I don't think that is illustrative of his character. He went up to that line. He scooped the honey out of it. He isn't supposed to be anywhere near that thing. Maybe God grants license when some wild animal attacks you and you have to rip it in two. He's killed this unclean animal. But he ought to have participated in what number six proclaims as the right actions for a person who is a Nazarite who has now touched an unclean thing. But he didn't. He really uh, violated God's uh, word in that way. So now, he violated his Nazarene vow. Then he unwisely shares the answer to the riddle with his young wife, ought not have. Maybe he didn't know that she had, her life had been threatened, but that goes to show that they didn't have a very good relationship. She should have told him what they were threatening, but they, it was just an infatuation of his youth a lust of the eyes, and so here they don't have a relationship where they can share that information. Then, when they get the answer out of her, they use it to get the clothing, he's angry. He's angry at them. He's angry at them, he's angry at her. In a petulant mood, he goes back up home, but then, a few weeks or months later, he just shows up. I'm here to claim my wife. And so, he's uh, very immature. He's a very immature young man. And so that is his second one. First, he deviated from his purpose. Second, he indulged in unlawful desires. And the third, he indulged in personal vengeance. He went down and killed 30 men in Ashkelon, took their clothing and gave them to these men up in Timnah. I don't think that was right. I mean, I realized that the Philistines were under God's uh, condemnation. And yet, it's not just anybody's uh, responsibility to go kill anybody like that. And it doesn't appear that he is doing this in, with God in mind. He's doing it to fulfill his own personal gambling debt. This was not right. And that's why I think he had guilt from it, because then later he says, I shall be blameless this time. I think he did consider himself blameless for the first one, this one, the killing the men. So then he's indulged in personal vengeance that once. Then he thinks he can control it, right? And so he goes down there and sets fire to all these fields, and he thinks he's going to contain the escalation, but it doesn't. It cascades out of control. He takes revenge upon the men. He rips them limb from limb. He then t has the jawbone of the donkey. He destroys all them men. All of this is in many ways just him fulfilling his own personal desires. The only time you see God come into the picture is after he's... Now, except for the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, and that's definitely God coming into the picture but from his own willful and knowingly seeking God out, you just don't see that yet. When do you see it? After his great victory. But we'll get to that. And then in the end, and what uh, Gil brought up with me before, in the end, 
right as he's knocking down the pillars, why is it that he prayed to God? What is it that he wanted to do? He wanted vengeance for the loss of his eyes. That is specifically what he prayed for in the end, and God granted that prayer. So he was a person consumed by selfishness and vengeance. The fourth thing is that he allowed desire to override his judgment, and that is obvious. Uh, he just appears to lack all common sense when he's dealing, especially with Delilah, where she's telling him exactly why she wants to know this so that she can bind him, and he eventually gives in to her. And each of these weaknesses was with a woman. First, a woman from Timnah, and this was probably a young man's infatuation with this young woman. He, sh he shouldn't have had her, he shouldn't have sought her, and yet he got her. And so that was maybe just infatuation. But then he had the harlot from Gaza in the early part of chapter 16. That is just lust. He's just wanting to be with this harlot. Then it's with Delilah. But her he loves. It says he loves her. And so this is closer to home. He's perhaps gotten uh, past this period of lust where he's down in Gaza, carried the gates off. But yet he's still allowing his proper common sense and his, his godly wisdom to be overridden entirely by the lust of the flesh. So Samson's sinful desires and his spiritual weakness resulted in him being ensnared in this way, and God left him. So despite his physical strength, great physical strength, he was a very weak man. He was emotionally weak and spiritually weak. So these are the four uh, negatives. He deviated from his purpose. He indulged his desires. He sought personal vengeance repeatedly. And he allowed desire to rule him and eventually to destroy him. So now, what is the one positive that I want to share? Well, the one positive that I want to share is really in two parts. Uh, first, when you see what has happened from chapter 13, verse 1, all the way up through the end of chapter 15, all that's occurred there, that all occurs within the space of a few months. That didn't take long. I don't think this took even a year. It's less than that. But it says in 1520, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So this is right after he's prayed. And look at his prayer at the end of chapter 15. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. So he's admitting that he is a servant of the Lord. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Levi, uh, in Lehi. Water came out and he drank and his spirit returned. And so then it says, he judged Israel 20 years in these Philistines. Doesn't that seem out of place? It, it's, when you first read it, it seems out of place because it's repeated again at the end of the next chapter, chapter 16. He had judged Israel 20 years. I believe what happened is this. He'd experienced all of this in his young adulthood, this tremendous uh, emergence of this powerful strength, because it's not obvious that he had that before this uh, incident with marrying the Timonite woman and then this escalation of violence. But now he knows it, and it is harnessed to God. So for 20 years, he serves as a judge without such indulgence in his sinful flesh and his sinful desires. I think that's what happened myself.
So then he does turn to God in times of trouble. So here he he is. His great strength has been realized. I believe he's served God faithfully for 20 years. He relapses into his sinful ways, first with the harlot in Gaza, the gate incident, then with Delilah, the imprisonment, the gouging out of the eyes, grinding. So, but now what happens? He again turns to God. He's there and he calls out to the Lord saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this one, so God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. So he has not fully gone back to God like at the earlier time when, he's, when he wants for God's glory these Philistines to uh, not get him. Because he's still praying for his own skin. He's already killed the thousand Philistines with the jawbone. But now he's exhausted. He feels like he's going to die. And he's in an arid place with no water. The Philistines have either been killed or run away. The Judeans have run away. He's alone. He has no water. He's going to die. And so he pleads for God to have mercy on him, but not for his own sake. For the sake that he can then be a faithful servant of God and be a, a opposition to the uncircumcised. And so God grants that. So now here he is at the end of his life, and again, he kind of has this selfish prayer, but he is about to die. I guess he feels that he will indulge himself this last time. And so he prays that God would give him the strength such that he can tear down this temple and destroy these people, bringing not only glory to God and destruction of some of Israel's foes, but vengeance for himself on his two eyes and what had happened. And again, God grants him that request. So... When you look for Samson in Scripture, you find him in Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. Nowhere else except one place. And let's turn there. It's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And so the writer of Hebrews commends Samson to us as a hero of the faith. And so I find it hard to believe that who is, he who is commended as a hero of the faith by the writer of Hebrews would in the end be lost due to his sinful lifestyle. And so I believe he was a believer, and yet he died at a time where he was engaged in sinful living again. He had fallen back into that lifestyle that he'd experienced in his youth, and it led to him having his eyes put out, and yet he Uh, his prayer for his somewhat selfish prayer to be avenged for his eyes was granted. Now, I have a question here. What more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets? And then it goes on to list their accomplishments. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. And so we might 
see Samson in some of these more heroic ones, like turning to flight the armies of the aliens or becoming valiant in battle, uh, in weakness made strong, maybe we could see him. But I think it's more in the out of weakness made strong. Even though he was probably the strongest man that ever lived, it was his weakness that led to his undoing, and it was his spiritual weakness that led to God having to grant him strength. You remember what God told Paul. Paul is praying to be freed from whatever was plaguing him, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Samson's strength was not a strength for him spiritually. It was a weakness. And yet in his weakness, in his spiritual weakness, God was able to work this wondrous work by having him fulfill God's plan, even despite the fact that he was indulging in his own personal vendetta, his own, his own personal selfish lifestyle. But yet, he's in the Hall of Fame for having returned to God fully. And so, remember, even with the wisdom of Solomon, even with the humility of Moses, even with the strength of Samson, we are nothing apart from God. So you have nothing that God needs, not your physical strength, not your great and mighty brain power, nothing. God has given it all to you. And so what he gives you is faith to have that belief in him, in his strength, and frankly, in his humility even. It is God's character and attributes that saves us and should dominate the Christians' lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Samson, and it is remarkable that you would do such mighty and incredible uh, works through a man who was so obviously sinful and fell so far short of honoring you by being obedient to his Nazarite vows and not even uh, fulfilling the, uh, the uh, breaking of the vow properly. And yet, Lord, it goes to show that you are a forgiving God that you have so much grace upon us and that our salvation is not predicated on our works and yet our uh, salvation is predicated on your works and your goodness. We thank you now for this time together. We thank you for your word and pray that you would use, that, use your word in our lives to make us more and more holy, more and more obedient and have our lives account for more for you and for your glory on this earth. We ask your blessings, Lord, upon us in Christ's name. Amen.